after three days, that is after three days from Paul's arrival in Rome, he, Paul, called together the local leaders of the Jews. And when they had gathered, he said to them, brothers, though I had nothing, done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. When they had examined me, they wished to set me at liberty because there was no reason for the death penalty in my case. But because the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, though I had no charge to bring against my nation. For this reason, therefore, I have asked to see you and speak with you, since it is because of the hope of Israel that I am wearing this chain. And they said to him, we have received no letters from Judea about you, and none of the brothers coming here has reported or spoken any evil about you. But we desire to hear from you what your views are, for with regard to this sect, we know that everywhere it is spoken against. When they had appointed a day for him, they came together at his lodging in greater numbers. From morning till evening, he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. And some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. And the Holy Spirit was right in saying, the, the Holy Spirit was right in saying to our fathers through Isaiah the prophet, go to this people and say, you will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's hearts have grown dull, and with their eyes they can barely see. With their ears they can barely, with their ears they can barely hear, and with their eyes they have closed, lest they would see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Therefore, let it be known that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. This is God's word. Thank you, Marissa. Every good storyteller knows that how you end a story matters. In fact, the ending to a story can either make or break that story. Think about a bad ending to a story, whether it's a movie or a book. Odds are it frustrated you. You got angry if you walked out of the theater and you were talking to your spouse or your friends about how you didn't enjoy it. Odds are it's because of the way that movie or that book ended. I remember when I loved the Harry Potter books, I told you the nerd would, would leak out every once in a while. Any other Harry Potter fans in there? I love the books. And I remember going to see some of the movies, especially the last couple, and I walked out angry because they changed the ending to the movie. It's like, you can't improve on these books. I don't know why you guys are trying to change the ending. A bad ending can really anger you. It can twist the whole story. But then a good ending, whether you're resolving all of the loose ends with the plot, or there's a good to be continued place. I remember when I saw the movie Inception for the first time, I won't ruin it. But those of you that have seen it, you remember how it ends, it captures your attention. You walk out wondering and trying to put yourself in the story, what's going on here? Or there's a, a to be continued that's placed at the end. I remember when I was young and I was watching a show called Walker, Texas Ranger. 
with my parents. I'm from, there's the Oklahoman for you right there. We need to bring Chuck Norris back, but people don't know about Cordell Walker. And I remember one end of the season, there's, he's chasing somebody down and they bring up to be continued at the end. Oh, you have to finish. You can't leave us on the cliffhanger like this. There are good endings, but the best storytellers know there's an ending that goes beyond just a good one. There's the best ending, and the best endings are invitations. The best endings are invitations. I remember back in 2011, I think it was, I'd heard about a book that had been circulating around. It had been on the New York Times bestseller list for for a few weeks, and I thought, okay, I need to pick up this book and read it, see what everybody's talking about. It was a book called Unbroken by Laura Hillenbrand. I said, okay, I'm gonna read this book. And it was about a man named Louis Zamperini. Now, Louis Zamperini was an Italian-American and he was a long distance runner, a really, really good long distance runner. This is back in the 30s when there was a race to see who could beat that four minute mile mark and Louis was a part of that. He qualified for the Berlin Olympics in 1936 and he did really well, he did really, really well. But that was just the beginning of the story. Those of you that had read the book, you remember that like most men in that period, as World War II is building and coming to a head, he gets drafted into the military. And Zamperini gets into the Air Force and he has a team that largely performs search and rescue missions in the Pacific Ocean. Day and night, they would go out, they would rescue people, but one unfortunate, fateful day, his plane experienced significant mechanical failure. They crashed into the Pacific Ocean, They lost all but three of his crewmates, Louie and two of his friends, and they were stranded on the ocean for 47 days. Clinging to whatever had survived from the plane, they fended off sharks multiple times. They fought off starvation. They lost one crewmate due to starvation. For 47 days, they were stranded in the ocean. Finally, they wash ashore, but it's the worst possible scenario. They wash ashore on an island that's occupied by Japan. They're taken into a prison. He becomes a prisoner of war. And for two whole years, his life literally becomes a living hell. They discover that he's a famous U.S. athlete. And so what do you think they do? They give him special treatment. They torture him. They mock him. They commit to making his life a living hell for two whole years. Finally, after those two years, when the war is over, he's released But his life was still a living hell. I don't know if we have any veterans in here, but just because you leave the war doesn't mean the war leaves you. And so for a whole year after that moment, he's having night terrors. He's imagining himself giving, getting vengeance on the people that tortured him. He's married, but his wife is feeling for her husband. She's trying to help him. He gets into alcohol. It's just a mess. Finally, his wife invites him to a religious camp meeting of a preacher that came into town, a man by the name of Billy Graham, if you guys have heard of him before. And she invited him to come. And at this meeting, Billy, or excuse me, Billy's preaching, Louis feels the stirring of the spirit. He feels the war inside of him. He wants to get vengeance on his killers. He doesn't want to forgive them, but he hears about the grace and the forgiveness of this God towards him. So Louis raises his hand, he gives his life to Christ, he goes home, he throws the alcohol away, he's committed to living out a life as a new creation. And so he had imagined going to Japan to get vengeance on his killers. Now he was planning to go back, but for a different reason. Those of you that have read the book, you remember, at this point, it would be a good ending just to give his life to Christ, but that's not how it ended. Hillenbrand writes about how a year later, Louis went back to Japan 
but not to get vengeance on his killers. What he wanted to do was go to the prison where they were being held, look them in the eye, and he forgave them. The people that had tortured him and mocked him, he looked them in the eye and he said, I forgive you in the name of Jesus Christ. And a little revival broke out in this prison where these former Japanese soldiers gave their lives to Christ. And I remember reading this, just overwhelmed. The movie didn't cover this. The books are always better than the movies. In the book, just overwhelmed in tears. How could this man forgive people that beat him, that tortured him, that mocked him? And I found myself thinking, if he can forgive them for that, then why am I holding on to a small little grudge? What was going on? Well, the best endings are invitations. Hillenbrand placed me in my own story using Louis's story to show me that this is the way that I'm invited to live, a life of forgiveness. But it's not just movies or books and modern culture that do this, the Bible does it too. I think about the book of Jonah. I think about Jonah, if you've ever read that book in a children's Bible, children's Bibles like to change the ending to that book. We're enamored by the whale, we know that the whale gets indigestion or something happens, he spits Jonah out and then hooray, the book ends, but that's not how it ends in the Bible. It's an uncomfortable book to read. Do you remember how it starts? What Jonah's commission is? God tells him to go preach a message of repentance to a people group called the Ninevites. The Ninevites live in, a, in the kingdom of Assyria and these are bad people, the worst of worst. What they would do to their enemies is they, they would skin them alive they would hang their skin on the walls in the city as a way of telling everybody else, if you threaten us, if you try to overthrow us, this is what's gonna happen to you. I don't know about you, but I can kind of understand Jonah's hesitation <laughs> to going to preach to these people. I would have done the same thing. But in a roundabout, or you could say a whaleabout way, he goes, to, he goes to Nineveh and he preaches a message of repentance. And do you remember what happens? What do the people do? Not a trick question, do you guys know? They repent. And so Jonah says, yes, let's throw a repentance party. I'm rejoicing with you. No, I saw some head nods. No, that's not what happens. Jonah is ticked. He is really, really mad that these people repented. Because in his mind, as a good Jew, this is Yahweh. This is our God. He's gracious and compassionate towards us. And in that moment, Jonah discovered he's not just gracious and compassionate towards us. He's gracious and compassionate even to our enemies. Hmm. The best endings are invitations. Anybody else struggled with God being compassionate towards people that wronged you, that you would call your enemy? That's why Jonah didn't want to go over and over in that book. He says, I knew that you were a compassionate and gracious God. I knew what would happen if you sent me. I knew that if they repented, you would forgive them. And that's exactly what happened. The best, the best endings are invitations. The book of Acts is no different. Marissa read the very last chunk of this book after 28 chapters, the way it ends. I'm gonna read those last two verses again. Verses 30 and 31. This is Luke talking about the apostle Paul. He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God, that's gonna be really important for today, and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. I want to draw your attention to those last two words. Some of your translations may just have one word there, unhindered. Now, I don't read Greek, but I read people who read Greek, and they tell me that that word is akolitos, 
which means freely or without hindrance, without forbidding. It's the very last word of not just the book of Acts, but the entire two-volume account that Luke has put together, the book of Luke and then the book of Acts. He ends it like this. He ends it describing it as unhindered. And at first glance, this doesn't seem to describe what's going on with Paul. Did you catch that he's in house arrest in Rome? Last time I checked, that qualifies as a hindrance, being in chains. At this point, Nero, who was the emperor of Rome, had begun to kill off Christians. Last time I checked, that qualifies as a hindrance. And yet Luke describes this moment as being unhindered. Unhindered seems to better represent what happened, say, in Acts 2, Pentecost, the day when God sends the Spirit and the church explodes. That looks like without hindrance. That looks like unhindered. Or I think about Acts 4 when signs and wonders are being done. That's a moment of unhinderedness. Or Acts 10 when the Spirit falls on the Gentiles and they experience a Pentecost of their own. But here, I mean, this doesn't seem to be unhindered at all. So maybe Luke made a mistake and how he ended this book. Or maybe something else happened, and scholars have come up with a few different proposals on why Luke ended the book of Acts this way. The first proposal says that poor Luke just ran out of paper. Hmm, the skilled doctor who carefully crafted this account, who made sure to record everything, just couldn't find a scrap of papyrus? I'd, I don't think so, I think that's a bit ridiculous. Or the second proposal says that Luke wrote an entire third volume he had Luke, Acts, and something else. Okay, that's interesting. But the third proposal, and this is where I'm at, hopefully you're at too, hopefully I've convinced you in two minutes, that Luke did this on purpose, that he knew exactly what he was doing, just like the book of Jonah, just like Unbroken with Laura Hillenbrand, as a master storyteller, a master author, he knows that the best endings are invitations. The biblical authors, and Luke especially, inspired by the Holy Spirit, are seeking to do something in the church, and not just in their day, but in ours. Luke wrote to the church in the first century, yes, but he's writing to us today. The word of God is living and active. This isn't just their invitation. This is our invitation today. This is your invitation. His goal is not to entertain it's not even just to instruct, it is to invite. Scholar N.T. Wright says it like this. Luke's writing, like Paul's journey, has reached its end, but in his end is our beginning. That sounds good, doesn't it? But what does he mean? What is Luke getting at here? And we have to go back to that last word, the word unhindered, because something is unhindered according to Luke. And remember, it's not Paul's circumstances. He's in house arrest. Nero has begun to kill off Christians. So what is unhindered here? The thing that is unhindered is not Paul's hands. The thing that is unhindered is the message coming out of his mouth. That is the thing that's unhindered here. And Paul, Luke says that Paul is talking about the kingdom of God. The thing that is, that is unhindered are not Paul's hands, it's not his circumstances, it is the message of the kingdom of God that is unhindered. And for Paul, the kingdom of God was everything. You have a friend or family member that always ties conversation back to one thing. I've got a friend that loves to climb mountains. And everything, all conversations come back to a mountain somehow. And I don't mind it. Because when you've experienced something that changes your life, you begin to orient everything around it. And for Paul, that was the kingdom of God. And he didn't just get this, he didn't originate it on his own. Do you know where he got this from? 
Not a trick question. There's a safe answer here. It's Jesus. He got it from Jesus. Paul isn't even the first person in the book of Acts to talk about the kingdom of God for a prolonged period of time. Luke very intentionally frames the book up. This is the end with Paul talking about the kingdom of God. The beginning of Acts begins with Jesus talking about the kingdom of God. I'm gonna read Acts 1, verses one through three. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the, say it with me, the kingdom of God. Luke could have said a lot of stuff here to describe Paul or describe Jesus' teaching ministry. And he sums it up by saying he was talking about the kingdom of God. And this is just the book of Acts. You guys have been in a series in the book of Mark. The four gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, if I were to ask you, what's the number one thing that Jesus was constantly talking about? How would you answer that? It's not sin, it's not money, it's not grace, it's not, it's not relationships, it is the kingdom of God. Jesus is always talking about this thing, this kingdom of God. I'm gonna read a verse in Mark. Mark 1, 14 and 15, this is at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry. Right out of the gate, this is what Mark says. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Mark here ties the gospel being with the kingdom of God arriving it's only been in the last few years that things have really started to click for me on the, this word gospel. Growing up, I used to just think that the gospel meant Jesus died on the cross for my sins, and that is definitely included. But how can Jesus preach the gospel here three years before he goes to the cross? Well, the gospel is bigger than that. It's the good news that the kingdom of God is here. It's at hand. Matthew says the same thing in Matthew four seventeen. From that time, Jesus began to preach saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. I don't know if you or somebody know when you read verses like this and you read that word repent, we can imagine Jesus with a scowl on his face, pointing a finger in your face. And that's not what's going on. When you read verses like this, see Jesus with a smile saying the kingdom of God, the thing that you guys have been waiting for and you have been wanting and anticipating, guess what? It is here. It is at hand. And do you know why it's at hand? Because Jesus is here. The kingdom comes close when the king has come close. And in these verses, Jesus is saying, the kingdom of God is here because I am now here. I'm bringing the kingdom. A couple chapters later, I know you guys know this verse, in Matthew 6, 33, in the Sermon on the Mount. And if you wanna know what life in the kingdom is like, read Matthew 5 through 7, the Sermon on the Mount. That's what life in this kingdom is like. Jesus says, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. And then earlier in that chapter, when the disciples ask Jesus, hey, help us to pray. We notice that you're pretty good at it. Would you mind giving us some tips? How do we pray to the Father? Jesus says, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your, say it with me, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Do I have you convinced yet that the kingdom of God is a big deal to Jesus? 
It's a very big deal to Jesus. But what is it? What is the kingdom of God? It's a big deal. Jesus is talking about it. So Blake, help us. What is the kingdom of God? I'm gonna give you a definition just to make sure we're all on the same page. It comes from pastor and author Jeremy Treat, who's actually the pastor of reality in LA. He's got a great book called Seek First, if you wanna know more about the kingdom of God. And in that book, he gives us this definition, if you're taking notes. The kingdom of God is God's reign through God's people over God's place. The kingdom of God is God's reign, his rule, through God's people over God's place. Are you guys with me? Let me give you an illustration to help. I know we're, we don't know each other that well, but there is something you need to know about me besides the fact that I'm a nerd, and it's that I have a kingdom. I know I, I don't have a crown, I don't look like much, but I have a kingdom. It's in Midtown Tulsa on East 45th Place. Actually, I should say we have a kingdom. My wife isn't here, but I co-rule a kingdom with my wife, and it's on East 45th Place. In this kingdom, we get to exercise our will. Our kingdom is where our will gets done. We get to decide on the decorations. We get to set the meal schedule. We get to determine what happens in that house, in that kingdom. But lately, however, two subjects in our kingdom are discovering something, and that's that they have a will. They can't disagree with the meal schedule. They can want brownies for breakfast. They can say they don't like something and propose something alternate. And I brought a picture of these two subjects just to gain your sympathy. Do we have that picture? I know, right? I know. These two subjects, they aren't doing a coup through muscle and force. They're much more subtle and manip manipulative. It's through smiles and daddy, daddy, and that just gets me every time. They're discovering they have a will in our kingdom. Can I tell you something? You guys have a kingdom. Each of you have a kingdom, whether you realize it or not. A place, remember, the kingdom is where your will is done. For God, the kingdom of God is where what God wants done gets done. It's the place where God's will happens. And so you have a kingdom. Some, some of us have kingdoms that are larger than others. If you own a business in here, that is a kingdom. There are other wills at play, otherwise that would be a dictatorship. Hopefully nobody has a dictatorship as a kingdom in here. But if you have a family, parents, you have a kingdom. Honestly, if you have a social media page, that is a form of a kingdom where your will can be done. If you're a teacher, you have a kingdom. Your classroom, if you're single and living by yourself, guess what, that is still a kingdom. That's where you can enact your will. The kingdom is the place where your will is done. So quick question for all of us then. What is life like for those living in your kingdom? If you're a business owner, what is life like in your kingdom? If you're a parent with young kids, what is life like in your kingdom? If you're a teacher with kids in your classroom, what is life like in that kingdom, because here's an important point, I don't want you to miss this, that life in a kingdom depends entirely on the king. Life in a kingdom depends entirely on the king or queen. Just ask somebody living in Russia right now what life is like in that kingdom. It's dependent entirely on the kind of king they have. You think about your history class. What is history but a long list of kings and queens for better or for worse that because of who they are, 
That determines what life in the kingdom is like. In Jesus' day, it was a tragic mixture of two kingdoms. You had the corrupt Jewish kingdom, and then you had the Roman Empire, the all-consuming Roman Empire. And here along comes Jesus, announcing a kingdom not of Rome's, not of Herod's, but of God's. These are big words. It's like he's announcing a new campaign slogan. Here's a new political figure on the scene. And he's saying that the kingdom of God is at hand. You guys think you have a kingdom. Well, guess what? Your kingdom, Rome, it spreads through fear rather than through love. And the kingdom of God is the exact opposite. Rather than spreading through fear, it spreads through love. It doesn't conquer through the sword. It conquers through service. This is what's going on in Jesus' kingdom. And the kingdom of God is good. It's a good place to be. And do you know why that is? Because the king is good. The kingdom of God is a good, it's a safe place to be. And why is that? It's because the king is good. He's good to be around. He is the one that brings God's reign on earth as it is in heaven. If you wanna know what it looks like when God rules and reigns as king, just read Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. This is what it looks like when Jesus comes along as king. And do you know who benefits from the kingdom? From the kingdom of God? It's not just those with money or status or power. Jesus gives us a list of the people that benefit from this kingdom. He says it's those poor in spirit, those who mourn, the meek, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, the merciful, the pure in heart, the peacemakers, those who are persecuted. That's what life looks like in the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is upside down because Jesus is an upside down kind of king. It still baffles now just as it did back then. Jesus is the one that brings the kingdom and the kingdom is good because the king is good, amen? But the story doesn't end with Jesus. After bringing the kingdom, which is God's reign, on earth as it is in heaven, he passes this kingdom project like a baton onto the church in the book of Acts. Acts, verse, Acts chapter one, verse eight. Talking to the disciples, he says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And guess what? The church does it. For them, the ends of the earth is Rome. And so for Paul, if you trace his journey in the book of Acts, he's got Rome on his mind because he had this command on his mind. He's bringing it to Rome because it's the ends of the earth. For him to get the gospel like a Trojan horse into the belly of the beast, into the heart of the empire, he's following Jesus' commands to the very end, to the ends of the earth. He does it. He gets the gospel to Rome, which means it's finished, right? The church can just pack up. Reality, what have you been doing the past 10 years? The church did it. Why are you still meeting? Well, of course, Acts does end with closure, but it also ends with an invitation because the best endings are invitations. So what is Luke's invitation? Luke's invitation to the church in every subsequent generation is to continue the project that Jesus started, that kingdom of God project on earth as it is in heaven, to continue this project. Why are we continuing it? Well, I'm sure you've noticed, but there are places in Santa Barbara, I think about where I'm from in Oklahoma, there are places that look more like hell than like heaven. 
there are people that are experiencing hell as a reality more than heaven. Hell isn't just a future reality. People are experiencing the reality of hell now, whether it's through addiction, whether it's through sickness, whether it's through lack or need or feeling like my family's in a generational curse, there is still work to be done. Let's take a look back at Jesus' line in the Lord's Prayer about the kingdom. He says, this is how you are to pray. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done. Those aren't two separate things. Remember, the kingdom is where the will is done. So Jesus is saying, pray that this kingdom that operates in heaven, pray that it would come in your local places on earth as it is up there. And this verse right here is one of the main reasons why I respectfully disagree with those, and I was one of these, that said that everything that happens in life is God's will. Have you said that before? I used to say it maybe 10 years ago or so, that no matter what we see happening, that it's God's will. Well, a couple weeks ago, when Russia and Ukraine were in um, peace talks. I don't know if you guys saw the news, but Russia bombed a children's hospital on a day when they were engaging in peace talks where three children were killed. Last time I checked, I don't think that that's God's will. I read a story about a Ukrainian mother who couldn't breastfeed because of the stress that they were going through and couldn't go out in the streets and buy formula because of what was going on. A baby going hungry, last time I checked, that wasn't God's will. And to help make sense of this reality, this dynamic that good things happen, we pray, people get healed, there's victory, there's celebration, there is that, but then there's also loss, there's frustration, there's, ah, why didn't you answer that prayer, God? To help explain this, the church has traditionally said that the kingdom of God is both now and not yet. The kingdom of God is both now and not yet. Maybe you've heard that phrase before, and let me unpack it a little bit more. By, the, by now, what I mean by the kingdom of God being now, it means that you do not have to be dominated by your sin. You do not have to be a slave to your sin. We can pray for healing and expect that God will show up and heal. We can expect good things to happen. Why is that? Well, the king that you worship used to be dead, but now he's not. And because a man rose from the grave, anything is possible. And he didn't just rise from the grave. Do you guys know where he is right now? He's somewhere up there. This just blows my mind when I think about it, that a physical human being crowned as king is at the right hand of the Father, seated in the heavens. Guys, that is weird. If you haven't thought about our beliefs as Christians, they are weird we need to recover the fact that we are a weird people. This man rose from the grave and he's seated somewhere up there as king, but it means that more is possible in life. One thing that I encounter as a pastor, and I even struggle with, just with my own church origin, family of origin, there's a little seed of doubt that, is God really that good? Is he really interested in my prayer? Can I really expect more from my family? Can I tell you what? If a man rose from the grave and is not just alive, but is seated at the right hand of the Father, anything is possible. More is possible. The kingdom of God is now. And we see it in operation in Paul's life. Earlier in this chapter in Acts 28, I'm gonna read verses three through nine. Paul is on his way to Rome, but he encounters a, he encounters a storm and there's a shipwreck. So they end up on an island called Malta. This is verse three. When Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and put them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. 
When the native people saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, no doubt this man is a murderer. Though he escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. They think it's karma. Paul escaped the storm, but the gods are making sure that he gets killed because he's done something wrong. Paul, however, almost like he had a mosquito on his hand, shook off the viper into the fire and suffered no harm. They were waiting for him to swell up or suddenly fall down dead. But when they had waited a long time and Paul was giving them awkward stares, I'm sure, they saw no misfortune had come to him. They changed their minds and said he was a God. What a, what a switch of mind there from these people. Now in the neighborhood of that place were lands belonging to the chief man of the island named Publius, who received us and entertained us hospitably for three days. It happened that the father of Publius lay sick with fever and dysentery. And Paul visited him and prayed, putting his hands on him, healed him. And when this had taken place, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases also came and were cured. What's going on here? Well, this is the now of the kingdom and operation. This man is shaking off snakes. Anybody been in a church where you tried to practice this? I've never been there, but I have some friends that have been in the super charismatic world, and it's because of verses like this. Well, let's bring, so no snakes are coming up here, I promise. I'm not a weird Oklahoman. He's shaking them off. He's healing people. This is the now of the kingdom of God in operation. But there's also a not yet to this kingdom because the same man that shakes off snakes and heals people on this island just came through a shipwreck, just came through a storm. The same man that earlier in Acts 19 was said to heal people through his sweat rags, if people touched Paul's rags, they would be healed. The same man that would heal people through that gets imprisoned multiple times, beaten multiple times, and dies on more than, or nearly dies on more than one occasion. That's the not yet of the kingdom. You probably haven't experienced everything Paul has experienced. Dear God, I hope not. <laughs> but his story is all of ours. Moments of victory, of celebration, of testifying to the goodness of God that he showed up here, and when he showed up, things happened. But you also know what it's like to experience loss, death, unanswered prayers, maybe anger at a God who didn't answer your prayers. My wife and I are sitting in this tension right now, and this is messy to sit in this tension. About a year and a half ago, we uh, found out we were pregnant with our third girl. Surprise, it was a complete surprise, and what started off as tears eventually moved into getting excited. We found out this baby was gonna be a girl. She had a name, we named her Lucy. And at 21 weeks, in a regular checkup, Sydney discovered that this baby didn't have a heartbeat. And because we had passed that threshold, this was not gonna be a miscarriage, this was gonna be a stillbirth. So we went in that weekend to the same hospital wing where we had delivered our second child. And where before we had gone there, anticipating a celebration, it felt like now we were walking into a prison. And it was the most hellish thing that we have ever experienced. One of those moments, I'm sure you've had them, where the only thing that can come up, come out of you, is this is not right. Whatever God's will is, whatever life is supposed to be like, I know it's not supposed to be like this. So we went through a season. We experienced it in different ways, but together we learned how to be honest with God how many of you know that you can say you're honest with God, but then you go through a season and you learn that I really haven't been? I watched She Taught Me what it means to lament, to ask God some really hard questions 
and you learn that he can take it. You learn that he's not going anywhere. You learn that he mourns and grieves with you just as much as you're mourning and grieving. It was a long season. But then now we're pregnant again. It's another girl and Victoria. She doesn't replace who we've lost, but it's still a celebration. It's a testament to God's goodness. What is it? It's the now and the not yet. And it's messy. This means that life is hard. It's complex. And when life is hard and complex, we Christians don't like it. We want black and white. And so what I've seen people do is we'll move to one of two extremes. The world I grew up in was, you could say, too much of the not yet. Maybe some of you grew up that way or still struggle with that. I don't know that God has good things for me. I've experienced pain and loss, and I just don't, I believe the now can happen for some other people, but maybe not me. And then other people, they'll get so far on this side that they ignore that there's brokenness and that there's mystery and that there's unanswered prayer. Gang, life is in the middle. (laughs) But if I'm to tell you to lean one way or the other, because a man rose from the grave and is seated at the right hand of the Father, continue to look for more. Don't let your circumstances dictate your view of God. Let the risen King Jesus who is seated in the heaven dictate your view of God because that's who he is. That is who he is. So what's our job in the meantime? If our invitation is to bring the kingdom, it can be easy just to talk about the now and not yet to help us know where we are, but gang, I think it's an invitation. The very fact that the kingdom of God is now and not yet is an invitation for the church to make the not yet look more like the now. It's an invitation to make the not yet look more like the now. And here's where I want to land the planes that Joseph and Robert, you guys can come back up. Remember that the kingdom of God is God's reign through God's people over God's place. Who are God's people? It's you. It's me. Sometimes God makes things happen on his own, and it's really cool when that happens. But you know how he works most of the time? It's through his church. It's through his people. Why did he set it up that way? I have no idea. If I'm God, I'm not doing that because people can be pretty, pretty dumb, We can screw things up. And that's the story of the Bible. And yet the story of the Bible also contains the story of Jesus who came as the person that brought God's reign on earth as it is in heaven. But then we have a charge as a church. Matthew 16, 19 says this. This is Jesus talking. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. What's he talking about? He's giving the church kingdom authority. Gang, you've seen me do it in operation. You've seen me heal. You've seen me teach, preach, and proclaim. Now it's your job. You're gonna get the spirit. And when you do, bring the kingdom. That's my invitation to you, Reality Santa Barbara, to bring the kingdom. As you move towards Easter, and you think about inviting someone to church, you're not just extending an invitation you are bringing the kingdom. You're bringing the kingdom. And do you know how you do it? If you're taking notes, this is my last point. We bring the kingdom when we act like the king. How do you bring the kingdom? You do Jesus-y stuff. I know you guys have talked about that. You bring the kingdom when you act like the king because the way of the king is the way of the kingdom. 
That's why, like Louis Zamperini, when you forgive someone that's wronged you, you're not just being nice. You are bringing the kingdom into that relationship. Do you have places of conflict in your life, in relationships, that looks more like the not yet? How about you make it more like the now by acting like Jesus? When you remember the name of a waiter or a restaurant, or a waiter or a waitress at your favorite restaurant, you're not just being nice, you're bringing the kingdom. Because maybe that person, they remembered my name. If you do it in the name of Jesus, that's an opportunity for them to wonder, well, maybe, maybe there's a God who knows my name. You're bringing the kingdom. When you give to Pastor Oleg, you're not just being financially generous, you're helping him bring the kingdom. When you serve in your community, you're not just doing community service gang, you're bringing the kingdom. Bringing the kingdom isn't just standing on the street corner with a bullhorn. That happens more in Oklahoma and it's really weird. It's not doing that. You bring the kingdom by the way you act when you bring the king and the way of the king. And do you know what happens to a church community when they act like the king? It becomes compelling and magnetic. It has a way of attracting people who were not interested in God, who see something going on, and it's not street corner preaching, it's kingdom living. It's kingdom living, it transforms the people inside the local church, but then it attracts people outside the local church. It's compelling and, and magnetic. We bring the kingdom when we act like the king as a church family, when you act like the king as reality Santa Barbara. So as we conclude, I know you guys have a time of worship at the end. I just wanna invite you to reflect on something pretty simple. I asked earlier, what is life like in your kingdom? I want you to imagine, in fact, right now, go ahead and close your eyes. Let the spirit bring to mind the different kingdoms that you live in. Parents with young kids, think about life in your kingdom. Have you been harsh with your kids? Do you need to apologize? Do you need to sit them down and say, hey, we want life in this kingdom to be good. I wasn't acting like Jesus the other day, I'm sorry. If you're a business owner and you know that there's conflict with somebody that you manage or you lead a team at work and there's conflict, I want you to imagine what it would look like to bring the kingdom into that situation, to act like Jesus. Maybe you need to send a text to someone after the service to set up that conversation because Lord knows tomorrow morning, you're gonna wake up not wanting to talk to that person. The Spirit is moving and living and active, and He wants to restore those places because He wants the not yet to look more like the now. What places in your life need to look more like God's kingdom? I'm gonna pray for us, and then we'll move into a time of worship. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. May your kingdom come, your will be done here in Santa Barbara, here in our lives, as it is in heaven. Spirit, we trust you to move. Do whatever you need to do in this moment. I know that there are people in here that need to come up and repent, that need to talk to you about a moment in which they lashed out at somebody. They gave in to their flesh instead of bringing your kingdom. Speak to us. Thank you, Lord.